prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, And I tell you, you are a Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come this morning thanking you, Lord, that you are the God of all creation, Lord of lords and King of kings. We praise you this morning that you have chosen to send Jesus to come and redeem us from our sin. And that's why we've gathered. We've gathered because you have redeemed us, Lord. And we ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning and teach us about who you are and about yourself and that our hearts would be stirred in a, in a world in which is going the opposite direction of how you would have us go. We're in desperate need of your truth. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Give us hearts that would understand this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. For those of you getting ready to start college classes and so forth, uh, you'll sign up for some classes and you'll be given a syllabus and there'll be expectations laid out upon that syllabus that will tell you what kind of books you've got to read or what kind of papers got to be written or what kind of tests going to be taken or what kind of, how many quizzes you're going to have to be prepared for. And along that, those lines and even in high school classes and other classes as well, teachers have to teach towards certain desired outcomes for the class in which they're teaching. Certain things that they hope will be accomplished as a result of the students having gone through the class. It's just not some aimless thing you're doing here and taking this class, although some classes may seem aimless and pointless at times. I've been through some. But there are some outcomes that are desired. And this morning as I have titled the message Ecclesiology 101, Ecclesiology meaning what is the church, Ecclesiology meaning the study of the church. The word ekklesia, the Greek word ekklesia, is where we get our word church. So ekklesia, ecclesiology, what is the church? As we think about that this morning, and we think about the desired outcome might be what is the church or be able to give the right answer, actually the desired outcome is more than to be able to give the right answer about what is the church. Although that's monumentally important. But the desired outcome that the Lord Jesus has in having this conversation with the disciples about the church, as you see in verse 18, the desired outcome is that these disciples might be those whom He describes as His followers later in the same chapter. That they might be those who would follow Him, denying themselves, taking up their cross, and being willing to lose their life for His sake. They may see things that are good in the world, but the Bible says otherwise. And to follow Jesus means they must deny themselves what seems to look good to them. It, may mean, it means for us that we may be see something in the world that looks good to us. A good job opportunity. But to take the job opportunity would be to compromise what the Lord Jesus says is true in following Him in relation to Scripture. 
Or it may be somebody that looks good that you want to court or date. But to follow the Lord Jesus is to say, I can't be with that person because I'm following Jesus. And Scripture says, I can't be with that person. How is it that we're going to deny ourselves these seemingly good things? That we're going to lose our life for Jesus' sake. That's, that's a daily thing. That's a hard thing. That's, that's a daily repentance. There are good thing, things that look good to us every single day out there that we've got to say no to. That's a, that's a repenter. That's a believer. Those are the kind of people that are make up the church. Repenters, believers, followers. And so Jesus asked some questions here of the disciples that are aimed to help them become those kind of believers and to, and to sustain that kind of faith. He asked them who, who He is. Now he's, now he's going to teach them about what the church is. And so this morning we're going to look again at six basic truths about the church. Six basic truths about the church that, that you need to grasp in order to sustain your cross-carrying, self-denying, life-losing Life in following Christ. Number one, the church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. The church is a family of called out followers of Jesus. And I preached on this and shared it with you last Sunday morning. Jesus here has just asked Simon Peter a question. And what was that question? He's asked all the disciples the question. He said, who do people say that I am? And they, some of them say, you're this prophet. And some say that prophet. Well, that's a pretty high thing to say of Jesus because those prophets were dead and they're saying, Jesus, man, He's a prophet that's risen again. But it falls short of who Jesus truly is. So Jesus says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. Now what does Christ mean? It means King. It means Messiah. The Anointed One. The Promised One. You are the Christ. You're the King. You're the Son of the living God. Now what is it that a king has to have? Well, a king needs a throne to sit on, don't he? I mean, a king needs, if he's got a throne to sit on, what good's a throne to sit on if a king don't have a people to follow him? Does Jesus at this point in His earthly ministry have either one? Oh, He's got some followers. But the Romans are still in charge. He's not sitting on an earthly throne. He don't even have a pillow to lay his head on at night time. In fact, the very people that he comes for, the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish people, they look at Jesus and they say, He's not the king. He's a blasphemer. In fact, he's doing the work of the devil, they say. But Peter speaks up in light of all of this, and he concludes and he says, You're the king. So Jesus says to him, Peter, flesh and blood, you're blessed because flesh and blood didn't come up with this. Nobody would come up with it on their own. People are hopeful because they see Messiah doing miracles. They see Jesus doing miracles. But he still doesn't have a, 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 his followers, his kingdom. The Romans are still in charge. Caesar is the one sitting upon the throne. Yet Simon Peter says, you are the king. Simon Peter, you didn't come with this up on your, on your own. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Flesh and blood would not conclude this. The Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Then he says to Simon Peter these words. He says, Peter, I tell you, on this rock, 
I will build my church. And essentially what Jesus is telling Peter is this. Something that will sustain Peter's faith is for Peter to know, Peter, what you just said. You're the the first one to speak up and confess that Jesus, that I am the Christ. Peter tells Simon Peter, or Jesus tells Simon Peter. You're the first one to say it, but Peter, I'm going to build something. I'm going to build a church an ecclesia, called out once. I'm going to build a community of people who've been called out who are going to confess the same thing you did. Peter, you are not alone. One of the things, one of the points of application we can take from this here is at this point that's going to help us carry our cross and deny ourselves what seems to be good things because we want to put Jesus first or lose our life for Jesus' sake is to know that we are not alone. Amen? That we have brothers and sisters in Christ that make up part of the church that's been called out to follow Jesus. Repenters. We come here and we say to ourselves, you know, I feel alone. Christians, we can feel alone, even sitting in church with people all around us. But the reality is, believers are never alone. Of course, we know Jesus is always with us, but the reality is, when we pray the Lord's Prayer... We don't pray my Father in heaven. We pray our Father in heaven. We are not alone. We're not the only one. You're not the only one here this morning that's got a problem. As heavy as your heart may be. You may look and you may be envious of other people in this church family and say, boy, that family or that person really looks like they got it together. Or, man, I I really wish I had what they had. You may secretly have those thoughts go through your mind, but I'm telling you something. Every single one of us who have been called out, who are following Jesus every single day are having to say no to things we're tempted with. We're having to lose our life and rearrange our priorities because we want Jesus to be first. And let me tell you, isn't that a struggle for every single one of us? Does that come natural for us to say, oh yes, I'm sure. I'll say no to something that looks very good because I want to follow Jesus. Is that easy? Is that natural? No, it's not. All of us are fighting and struggling every day. To have such a faith in Christ that we would deny ourselves and lose our life for Jesus' sake and follow Him. And isn't it comforting to know we gather in this place on Sunday mornings or we see each other in Sunday school or throughout the week we see other believers and we know the reality is we are not alone. That there's a church that's been built. There are others who've been called out. We're not the only ones saying, You are the King! And that's what Jesus is telling Peter. You're not the only one, Peter. I'm going to build a church of other people who are going to say, You are the king, and I'm going to follow you. So know one thing that's going to sustain us is know we're not alone, that Jesus is building this church. The church is a family of called-out followers of Jesus. And we're not alone. Secondly, the church's foundation is the truth of Jesus. You want to have a faith that sustain, that will keep denying self and carrying cross, carrying your cross and losing your life for Jesus' sake. A second truth you must grasp that Jesus is telling Simon Peter and the disciples that are listening. You need to hear this, Simon Peter. You need to hear this, disciples. The church's foundation is the truth of Jesus or the proclamation of Jesus or the profession of Jesus. It's the truth of Jesus. A couple weeks ago I saw on television that a dormitory in Nashville at Vanderbilt University was being demolished 
so that could, a new one can be built in its place. So I imagine what had to happen for that to happen just right is the engineers had to do some planning, of course, and place the charges of dynamite or whatever, whatever type of explosives in strategic places, probably close to the foundation of that building. And once those explosives went off in that old dormitory, anybody inside that building was doomed once the foundations were destroyed. And one of the things we need to understand is if the foundation of the church, if we're not right about the foundation of the church, anybody inside that thing is doomed. If you're inside anything, if you're part of something that you think is the church, when in fact the foundation is not the truth of Jesus, you are doomed. And Jesus says to Peter here, I tell you, you are Peter, which is a, means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And some, of course, have taken that to mean that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying Peter is the, is the first pope of the church, the first leader of the church, the, 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 the one who's going to be given all this authority to lead the church, and it's going to be handed down to another man someday, on down to even Pope Francis today. But that's not what's taking place. There's no pope here, but there is a Peter in this passage of Scripture. He is telling Peter, Peter, you are this rock. He really is telling Peter that. We should not try to go around that because of our Protestant uh, convictions and concerns about the papacy. But what he's telling Peter is, Peter, you are this rock, but you're not the only rock. You're just the first one. You're the first one to confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But there are more rocks to come. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we see that, Jesus, that we're told that the church will be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the, the cornerstone. See, Peter is a rock just like the other apostles will be as well, who, who, who will confess the truth about Jesus. Some will write down words, inspired words, that will become the foundation of the church, the truth about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, in fact, tells us that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And why is that? Well, who was it that the early church was devoted to? Was it devoted to Peter? Was it devoted to James? Was it devoted to Paul? Paul said he was glad he didn't baptize anybody. He didn't want nothing to this fallen human being. He said this, or excuse me, this is what Luke said. God said through Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, who, what, was the, what was it that the early church was devoted to? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching not to the apostles as individuals their personalities but to the apostles teaching why is that because the the apostles taught the truth of Jesus as handed down to them so the foundation of the church as one pastor said that I agree with the Lord builds the church the Lord Jesus builds the church on the truth of himself the foundation of the church is the proclamation of Jesus according to what has been revealed in Scripture. The foundation of the church, therefore, is the Word of God that testifies to Jesus. So Jesus is the foundation of the church, and the church is built upon the truth of who He is, as found in Scripture, coming originally through the apostles. The church's foundation is the truth of Jesus. So why is this important? Why is the big deal? Why are we dwelling on this again for this moment anyway? What will happen then if the church as I've already illustrated in that Vanderbilt dormitory, if the church is built solely upon the person of Peter, or if the, per, if the church is built upon the Pope, or if the church is built upon a pastor or a pastor's personality, or if the church is built upon popular trends, if we're trying to build the church on an individual, on a pastor's personality, on popular trends of the world, what, what, 
what's going to happen to that church? It is doomed. Because the foundation of the church is the truth of Jesus. We tried to build the church on popular trends and, and what's happening in the world, and, and we circumvent the Word of God and the truth of Scripture, and we don't say much about Christ, if any at all, and give lip service to Him, then the foundation is no longer what it should be, and it is doomed to collapse. Oh, it may look good on the outside. I mean, how many buildings we heard about that looked really nice, and all of a sudden something happened to those buildings? It happens every once in a while, and we find out, man, it looked really good on the outside, but nobody knew something was, something was wrong with the foundation. And all of a sudden, one day, nobody knew it. It all looked good, and then all of a sudden, that building comes down. Nobody knew about it. It looked good on the outside. Everything seemed to be great, but the foundation was fragile. It was cracked. Some of you heard about Josh Harris, the uh, author of I Kissed G Dating Goodbye. A very uh, influential book written several years ago when Josh Harris went on to pastor a very large church and, uh, at 30 years old and, and went through some trying times during that time. And now he's said that he's actually divorced his wife and he's apologized to the LBGTQ community for his past convictions and things he said. And now he says... He's no longer a Christian. I heard about this last weekend, as some of you did through social media, and it's bothered me a great deal. Um, first of all, because this, person, this man, Josh Harris, was a professing believer in Jesus. Of course, he never was a true believer. You don't, you don't walk away from Christ if you're a true believer. It's impossible. But it's also concerning because I think about those he's close to, not only his family, but his, the church family that he's pastored and people that's read his book and be influenced by. And he seems to serve an example and a warning to be very careful about following any personality out there. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is built on the truth of Jesus. It's not built on a charismatic figure like Josh Harris or somebody like that, if it's not built on the truth of Jesus, our faith is going to be shaken greatly. Be sure you're building your faith on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ upon His Word. And we have a responsibility as parents, as those who are in leadership, to be sure that if those we're leading, which may be our family, it may be our kids, it may be our Sunday school class, it may be our church, that if we begin to drift from the foundation, the truth of Jesus, that we do something about it. The third truth we need to grasp is the church will be built by Jesus. Amen? The church will be built by Jesus. I mean, how many times have... Man, there's so many servants of the Lord sitting out here this morning that you've, you've faithfully taught the Word and you're trying to be a good Christian parent in your, in your family. You're faithfully witnessing and... To, to those lost family members and praying for them. And, and how many times any of you ever get discouraged because you don't see the fruit that you would like to? Well, if you're a human being, you probably do. But how encouraging is it to know that Jesus says, you're looking at your Bible right here? That Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, you're a Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. He does it through his laborers, but Jesus will build his church. Peter, the first rock laid in the foundation, the first one to confess Christ, went on to be a very instrumental in the life of the church. In fact, he's the one that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches boldly to, in Jerusalem that 
those people who are standing in front of him are responsible for the death of Jesus. And he tells them to repent. And as Peter preaches the truth about Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus adds to his church. There are 3,000 souls added that day. Jesus will build his church. I will build my church, the Lord Jesus says. I received news from a, a private Facebook group I'm a part of in Bosnia about some missionaries that some of you know, and I can't mention their names, um, but that serve in Bosnia. And whenever I've talked with these, these missionaries um, the past few years that we've met, I've talked with them, and they've been there about 15 years, and, and they've wept a couple of times and cried with me saying, you know, we've been here 15 years. And we've never seen a convert, not one. You say, why, why stay there? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. Because Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have sh other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. and They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus will bring his sheep. So this week, I received a message from the, these missionaries who said that they had received a message on their voicemail from a lady who's 55 years old wanting to be baptized. They, they'd never met her. Of course, they're suspicious. And not only this lady, but this lady has a friend that's 25 years old who wants to be baptized. And they said, so please pray. And so we were praying this week, and I got another message later in the week that they got in contact with these ladies. And these ladies told their story, and they said, the 55-year-old lady said, when I was 14, she was exposed to Scripture. She was exposed to the Bible, and she was encouraged to, to make a profession of faith. And apparently she did, but she didn't tell anybody, perhaps. But she began to read her Bible. So for 40 years, she's been reading her Bible. And recently she ran into somebody she worked with, a 25-year-old lady, and they began to read the Bible together. And they came under conviction by reading the Bible... And because someone had shared with her when she was 15 years old many years ago, they came under conviction they needed to be biblically baptized as followers of Jesus. And, they, and these missionaries are absolutely rejoicing right now. They have labored and labored and wept. And they are seeing that Jesus will build His church. Amen? So be faithful. Jesus will build His church. I have to remind myself of that all the time. Number four. The church is led and loved by Jesus. The church is led and loved by Jesus. If I was to see somebody mess with my little girl Lydia over here, you know what I'd do to them? I'd seek Deanna on them. Because <laughs> Deanna's not going to let anybody mess with her little girl. And I'm not either. So I'd seek Deanna on them. Or I might say to that person, Get your hands off of her right now, or I'm going to get my hands on you. That is my little Lydia. That is my girl. And I want you to notice what the Word of God says here, that Jesus says, I will build what church? I will build my church. That is my church. I own that church. I care for that church. I love that church. This is my church. You remember what Jesus said 
to Saul, who later became Paul on the road to Damascus. And Peter saw, a, and Paul, excuse me, Saul saw a blinding light. You remember what the Lord Jesus said as he appeared to him from heaven? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul had never met Jesus until he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus was speaking from heaven. And what Jesus was saying is, you're messing with my church. And if you mess with my church, you're messing with me. And the Lord saved him. Jesus, we need to know that he leads his church and he loves his church. This, he says, this is my church. How do we know that? Besides it saying, this is my church here. We sang about it this morning. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And by his blood he bought her. And for her life he died. That's what Jesus has done for the church. This is his church. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And we can be assured that Jesus leads and loves his sheep, his church. That should sustain us. That should help us to keep saying, I'm going to remember the gospel. I'm going to remember what Christ has done. And I'm going to say no. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to, this is hard. But I'm, I'm losing my life here. I'm rearranging what I'd like to do. Because I remember what He's done on the cross. Folks, that's why we come to church. To remember this gospel. That's, why the, that's what, what we do must be centered on Christ and the gospel and not anything else. That's, that's why this, this, that must be the foundation. is the truth of who Christ is and what He's done. Because only that will sustain us as we seek to lose our life and carry our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Fifthly, the church is victorious through Jesus. <laughs> the, the church is built by Jesus. The church is led and loved by Jesus. The church is victorious through Jesus. Let me tell you this. Church buildings have doors that can be closed. There are church buildings in our area that have had to close their doors. One day it's possible that, God forbid, but that this church would have to close its doors. But followers of Jesus, which are the church, have souls that cannot die. Amen? The church is a called out family of believers. This community of believers that profess faith in Christ. Church buildings may close their doors, but Souls that have been saved by Christ cannot be lost. They are His. The church is victorious through Jesus. The reason I say that is notice what He says to Simon Peter next in verse 18. Are you looking at your Bible? Look at the end of verse 18. He says, I'll build my church. And then what's it say? And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, which is talking really about death, shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail against the church. So what this means is the one who said hell representing death and what happens to us when we die. And of course there is a place called hell where people burn and live for, and really it's not living, but are there forever. Yes, there is such a place. But such a place is no threat to the church. Even death itself is no, place, no threat to the church. The church cannot die. The one who said... I am the resurrection and the life is the same one who said, No man shall pluck you out of my hand. 
Who can bring a charge, Paul said, against God's elect? Well, a lot of people could bring a charge against God's elect, against God's church. A lot of people could say, there's no reason that lady should be in heaven someday because of all the things she's done. Yet that lady, who by God's grace is repenting and trusting only in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done and has been born again, a charge can be brought against her? Yes, But the one who says that lady who's trusting only in Jesus for justification and salvation, if someone says that lady should go to hell, Jesus says, over my dead and resurrected body. Because Jesus, there's victory through Jesus. Jesus went to the cross and then three days later, (laughs) He rose again. And we're told by the Apostle Paul, O death, 1 Corinthians 55, where is your victory? O death, Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is victorious through Jesus. The church cannot die. The church lives forever. The church will always be here until the Lord Jesus comes back to get her. And let's just be comforted for a moment here that all our loved ones who are believers in the Lord Jesus who die before the Lord Jesus comes, the Bible says that they are in the presence of the Lord now. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible says one day a trumpet's going to blow and every eye's going to see Him. And it says there's people coming with Him. You know why they're coming with Him? Because they're with Him right now. Because death couldn't have them. Death couldn't hold them down because there's victory through Jesus. And man, one day there's going to be a great reunion. They'll even make an old snarled up Baptist shout, I guess. You know. The church is led and loved by Jesus. The church is victorious through Jesus. And sixthly, the church has been given authority from Jesus. The church has been given authority from Jesus. Verse 19, another greatly debated verse that can take you one of two polar extreme conclusions. So there's two crucial questions that need to be asked here when Jesus says something about these keys in verse 19. Two crucial questions. One, what's been given here? What exactly is Jesus giving Peter? And who exactly is it being given to? Is it just Peter? Is it Peter and his successors? Who is being given? What is being given, and to whom is it being given to? What has been given? If let's just look at verse nineteen and read it. It says, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." So, what has been given? And I tremble and shudder at the. Uh, I'm seeing more and more kids in our church driving down the streets, and it's not that I don't trust you, but I do kind of watch my rearview mirror a little bit. And I tremble even more knowing that my own 13-year-old, it's enough that he wants, to, he wants to have the keys to the riding lawnmower. But knowing one day my time's coming where he's going to want to have keys to my truck. And I'm tempted to say over my dead and resurrected body. <laughs> and why is that? Because there's much responsibility comes with being give, handed the keys over, right? Well, suppose we were to hand over the keys to the house. And I was to say, son, I'm leaving. and I'm going to be gone for a while. And you can't let anybody in the house unless 
I've approved of it, and here's, here's how I've approved of it ahead of time. So you have authority to let people in the house or not let them in the house based on what I'm already telling you, What's, what I've already determined to be the truth. That might help a little bit to help understand what exactly these keys of the kingdom of heaven are. See, it says keys of the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to get in and who's going to get out? We know all about abuse of power, don't we? I mean, we heard about Puerto Rico this week, deposing of their governor and being replaced by their secretary of state because he was abusing power. You know about abuse of power in the state of Illinois and some of the governors you, you've had, and I say you've had because a lot of you have been here a lot longer than I had, and I'm just dealing with the fallout. So when Jesus says here about the keys, it might help to, to think about what Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now these are leaders of the Jewish people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What do they do? Class? They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves and allow those who would enter to go in. Now listen to what Luke chapter 11 verse 52 says. Something very similar. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. These who are leaders of God's people, these lawyers, these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these who are supposed to be the leader of the Jewish people, who are supposed to be serving the Jewish people, by looking to the Scripture and seeing what the Scripture says about Messiah, instead look at the Scripture and elevate their tradition above Scripture. And when Jesus the Messiah stands in there looking them in the face, they say, He's got a demon. He's of the devil. And they abuse their power. And the, instead of helping people enter the kingdom of God through the Messiah who has come, who is Jesus, and not depend upon the law or man's tradition as they're doing, instead they shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. And they don't enter themselves. And Jesus is telling Peter here, I'm giving you the authority to open or close the kingdom of heaven. In other words... As Peter preaches what's already been revealed, and as other foundation stones, others in the church preach and proclaim the truth of Jesus and what the church has been built upon, the way people respond to that truth by God's grace determines whether they enter the kingdom of God or not. God is not telling us here that an individual named Peter or anybody else grants, determines whether or not people go to heaven. Or determines anything else for that matter. And heaven just puts its stamp of approval on it. That's not what's happening. But that's how this verse is taken a lot of times. There's a truth of Scripture already been given that we are to hold to. It's, we call it sola scriptura. And what the Bible tells us and the Bible alone tells us is that people who place their faith and trust in the revealed truth of Jesus Christ. Repent and trust in Him. They enter the kingdom of God. What's being given is the authority to proclaim the gospel. And who's it being given to? Is it being given just to Peter, and then Peter hands the keys over to somebody else that comes along and takes his place as leader of the whole church? And then whatever that leader says goes for the whole church because he has, some, he has some binding and loosing power. He can speak on the same level as Scripture. Is that what's going on? Absolutely not. But there are one billion people in the world who've been taught that the Pope has that authority. 
and he does not. And there are great things at stake here. How do you know, preacher, that it's not being handed just to Peter and his earthly successors? Look at Matthew chapter 18 quickly with me. Matthew chapter 18, if you don't look at it with me quickly with me, it's going to take me longer to show it to you, so you better look at it with me quickly. Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, in the context of church discipline, where you're supposed to go to somebody and talk to them about their sin, and if they refuse to listen to you, you go with a brother, and if they refuse to listen to you and a brother, then you go and do you do what it says in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever, he, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Does that language sound familiar? Does it sound like Matthew chapter 16, verse 19? And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, who's being told they have the keys to have the authority to do that there? Not Peter. It's the church. Those keys and that binding and loosening authority are given to the entire church. And in the context of discipline here, what would take place is the church has the authority to say to somebody who professes to know Jesus but acts like they don't, the church has the authority and love to go to that person and say, we are concerned about your soul. And we are no longer going to treat you as if you're a brother in Christ. And the church has the authority to do that, even the responsibility to do that, because the church has the keys of the kingdom. The church is not saying, you're going to heaven now, you're going to heaven now or you're going to hell now. We can't say that. But we can say, based on how you're responding to the truth of Jesus, we have no reason to believe you're a Christian, and we're no longer going to treat you as if you're a brother in Christ. That's, that's what Matthew 18 teaches. We'll get to it in a few weeks as the Lord leads. But you see, this authority is given to the church. And that's what I wanted to see for this morning, not just an individual. So what's at stake here? What's at stake here is the gospel. What's at stake here is the gospel. Because if this authority that's given to the church uh, is actually, if we're wrong about that, it was actually just given to one man named Peter and then he passed the keys on down to another man on down and on down and down and down down today and now we have a man named Pope Francis and he has the keys of the church. That man has the keys of the church and that man says what the Council of Trent said in, in the 1500s is still true that we're not justified by faith. We're not right with God by faith. We're actually right with God by doing penance and doing all kinds of good works. So if we're wrong... And, the key, and, that, and that man really does have these keys, and what he says is on the same level as Scripture, then we are rebelling against the true church, and we are outside of Christ. We are not saved, because we're not doing what the church says. So you can understand why Martin Luther, when he stood in front of, I believe it was called the Diet of Worms, a meeting of bishops and so forth in his day, to being asked to recant what he, he had come to believe, you can understand why he was scared to death. Because to be excommunicated was to be told that you are now eternally condemned to hell. Because that's what he had been taught about the church and about what these verses meant. You see, Martin Luther, Martin Luther was one of the most dedicated monks that could possibly be. And I've told some of this before, but they, it's been said that he would go to confession 
And he would spend hours in confession. The priest would, would hate for Martin Luther to come to confession because they'd say, oh no, he's coming again and he keeps us for hours. Because he was so concerned that he had to confess every single thing he could possibly confess. Or else he might die and go to hell. Because his salvation he had been taught was to do what the church said to do and confess every single thing and not leave out anything. So he would drive the priest nuts confessing all of his sins only to leave the confessional and think to himself, did it work? Am I right with God? But one day, one day by the grace of God, he was reading in the book of Romans chapter 1 where it says the just shall live by faith. And later he wrote about that experience. It was as if the, cl- the, the, the clouds parted and the heavens opened and a flood of gospel freedom came to his soul because he understood what it said. The just shall live by faith. Faith alone in Christ is what makes us right with God. We are saved not by what we do, but what Christ has done all of it. And I'm right with God. He sees me clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is, praise God, this is good news. And so what's at stake here is the gospel. If we're right, praise praise the Lord. And we are. If we're wrong, we rebel against the true church and we've not earned enough good works because we're just just dependent on Jesus. We're wrong about that. That... There is no middle ground here. So let's talk about some application before I close in prayer. My first day teaching in college classes several years ago I was at Oakland City University in Bedford, Indiana, a small extension campus where they'd asked me to, I was pastoring a small church and they'd asked me to teach some history classes because I had a history degree in college. So I started teaching these classes. And uh, my very first day, I was nervous to stand in front of these college students. You know, I was about 27 years old myself and and I was nervous to stand in front of them. And so, prior really to the first day of classes, the dean of the school brought me in and said, Now, there's something we didn't tell you. Well, great. Is the last professor that you're taking place here, he was very popular. But we felt like maybe he, his standards were just not high enough. And so, just understand that some of these students may be a little upset for you to be on board here. Great. So the first day of class, I go to class and and I'm nervous and I'm I'm telling what the syllabus has on. I'm, of course, it's a Christian school, so I open in prayer, which is something not done in any of the classes there, to my knowledge, and and told them I was a pastor. And and then I, they started asking questions, and I don't know, it's a history class, so I might have said something about some of the things that we'd be studying about the Holocaust and Hitler and things like that. And they asked me some questions, some kind of some questions that put me on the spot a little bit, which I didn't. I was too gullible to realize that's what they were doing. Then after class, one of those students went to the dean who I had talked to just the previous week and, and told him, the dean called me in his office. And he said, a student came to me today and he said that this student said that you told them they were all going to hell. And I said, I didn't tell them they were all going to hell. And I don't even remember the question that was asked or the conversation or the context for that matter. But to my knowledge and memory, I probably said something to the effect, yes, anyone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to Him, yes, they will go to hell. And just, just a simple truth, you know, the truth. And of course, 
living in a time where an age of tolerance, you know, where we tolerate everything, you, you say stuff that specific and that narrow, people don't like that. And I was kind of naive to that. Of course, I'm glad I was because maybe my flesh would have not spoken the truth like I should have. But the fact of the matter is there's only one way to enter the church, and the, church, the true church has the keys. And that's, that's to proclaim the truth according to Scripture, and that's, that's what, I, what's what I was doing. That's what you've been called to do. That's why we had the Way of the Master evangelism class this morning that Casey taught. We've been doing some other three circles evangelism classes, and a young lady told me this morning, Guess what, Pastor? I got to share the three circles evangelism strategy. Uh, uh, presentation with somebody this week and she was so excited and somebody else told me a, a week ago that they were at work and they had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and why do we do that because we have the authority to reclaim the gospel and if someone says to us you know um, I don't believe that or I don't want that or I'm not ready for that then we have the authority to look that person in the eye and to say to them If you reject Jesus, you, you will perish. You will go to hell. We even have the responsibility to say that in so many words. You know, everybody wants to hide behind, don't, we're not to judge, we're not to judge. No, I, I understand that. We can't look into somebody's soul and see if they're a believer. But if somebody's telling me with their lips, I don't believe this. I do not want to repent, or I believe this, but I'm going to go ahead and keep living exactly the way I want to. Based on what Scripture says, followers of Jesus, called out followers of Jesus, are self-deniers, life, life losers for the sake of Jesus. Based on what Scripture says about a true follower of Jesus, what I can say to them, and I hope you'll write this word down or at least remember it, write down the word or think about this word, concern. I can at least say this, friend, I am concerned about your soul. And they may take offense to that, but it might be the very thing that God might use by His grace to reveal, as He did to Peter, who Jesus truly is. Maybe what we need to say to people is, I am concerned about your soul. Rather than just open our arms and embracing anybody that says they believe in Jesus because we don't want to be offensive and we don't want anybody to think that, you know, we think we've got the market on the gospel and, and that we're not open-minded enough. We're concerned about those inside the church. So we have the authority and responsibility holding the keys of the church to go to people inside the church and to say, we're binding and loosing according to what's already been revealed in Scripture. Scripture alone is what we're bound and loosed to. And brother, what I want to say to you, because I love you, as long as, you're, as long as you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you're not fleeing sexual immorality, I'm telling you, you're in sin. Whether you, whether you think it's right or not, you're in sin. It's wrong. We have the authority, even responsibility to say that. We even have the authority and responsibility to say, look, if, if, you, if, you, if you continue to live in sin, whatever that sin might be, and just embrace it and make excuses for it, I'm concerned that you even know Christ, that you even know the Lord. We, we have the responsibility to say that to one another as a church family, the authority to do so, and express that concern to those outside the church. Jesus says in verse 20, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Well, that's because of the context in which this is being spoken. 
They're not to run out and create some nationalistic fervor where everybody says, Oh boy, Jesus is the Christ. Let's jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. And they have no concept that a follower of Jesus is not one that's just excited that Jesus is coming to get rid of the Romans and take away, take away their earthly problems, but Jesus is coming to take away their sin, to go to the cross. And the disciples are not getting ready to go out and proclaim that because they're just now grasping it themselves. So he says, tell no one in verse 20 that I'm the Christ. But in chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 19 and 20, he says, tell everyone that I'm the Christ. And that's where we're at today. We have the authority and we have the responsibility. And hopefully we'll hear more about this in coming weeks to saturate this entire area that we're, our church has been planted to tell every single person, man, woman, boy, and girl, the truth about Jesus. Most people living in this area have never heard the gospel. They've really just never heard the gospel that we're right with God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's a natural conclusion that men have that we're right with God by what we do. And Jesus is just part of that. And friends, I'm here to tell you, He's, a, he, he's the beginning and end of it. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And people desperately need to hear this gospel. And they need to simply hear us say, I'm telling you this. I know you say you go to church. And you seem like you're a great person in all this. And, and I'm not saying you're not a sister. I'm not saying you're not a brother in Christ. But I just want to ask you, why do you believe you'll go to heaven when you die? And listen to what they say. Because I'm concerned about you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us. And Jesus, the truth of Jesus, that He being the Son of God, the Messiah, has went to the cross and He has laid down His life for our sins. He's made the way and the only way for us to know You. Father, we thank You and for saving us. And Lord, we recognize and are reminded this morning of the responsibility you've given to us as the church to wield the keys of the kingdom according to Scripture, to be bound and loosed according to Scripture, to speak truth to others, whether they profess Christ or not. God, help us to be faithful. And we pray, Father, this morning for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, maybe even in this room, this place, that are listening to this message, God, we pray that you would grant faith and repentance. They would turn and trust only in what Jesus Christ has done for them and nothing else. Lord, do this for your glory and your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand this morning, and we're going to sing together this closing song. And as we stand and sing, if you'd like to come during this time, I'm going to be standing at the front. I want to encourage you to repent and trust in Jesus and repent and trust in Jesus today. And if that's happening in your heart, we would love for you to share that with us. You can share it with us right now if you'd like to. Just come on up here and share it with us. And I'll talk with you and counsel with you later to see exactly what uh, we believe happened in your heart and hear more about what you have to say or seek me out after the service this morning or another believer in Christ that you know and talk with them about how God's at work in your life. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's sing and praise our God together right now. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. 
God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.